the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you build a uh, church campus this big, uh, there's bound to be a couple little foibles. And one of the foibles is uh, that there's no light switch right here. Now, there's a light switch over there, but that's a closet. And so that's the doorway that, that we tend to come through. And I find myself trapped in the dark here an awful lot. I come through and, you know, there's no exterior light in here. So when the lights are off, you, you come into darkness. And usually the stage is full of contraptions and I'm kind of groping my way through there. And uh, this happens frequently. Now, I confess that it's usually... Uh, my going to try to get a, a leftover biscuit in the kitchen after Wednesday night's over. But uh, we all know what it's like to grope around through the dark, don't we? I mean, you go downstairs in the dark, you get to that last stair, and you're kind of doing that. And uh, it's just like a weird, uncomfortable feeling. You don't really know what's going on. Well, you know, there's an old illustration, very, very old. I'm sure many, if not all of you, have heard this. But uh, it's, it's this idea uh, that God is an elephant. God's like an elephant. Who's ever heard God's like an elephant? Okay, well, this will be fresh for a lot of you then. Um, the idea is, well, God's like an elephant. And if one uh, blind man feels the trunk, he goes, oh, well, God's like this. He's like a snake. And if another blind man feels God's leg, he goes, oh, no, God's like a tree. And if a third man, a blind man feels his ear, he goes, God's like a, I don't know, whatever the ear's like, a manta ray, you know. Not that blind people scuba dive that much, but... Uh, <laughs> But he has his, the idea is they each have a perception, you know, of what God is like. They're all blind. They can't see. But and the idea is, well, God's like an elephant and everybody just grabs a different part of the elephant. But it's all the same elephant. I mean, it just doesn't matter how you get there, but it's all the same elephant. Well, that is a very bad illustration about what God is like. And the reason is it, if, if you hold that view that, well, it's OK how you get there. It's all the same God. You just got a different part of him. What's the big deal? If you hold to that view. You put yourself in the spot that you can see. Everybody else is blind, but you, you can see the elephant. And not only that, the other flaw is you can see the whole elephant. You know, you just don't have a little bit of it. You've got all of it. So now you step into the shoes of, of uh, omniscience. You know, you know all things all of a sudden. And, and that's where that, uh, that position logically gets, becomes obliterated. Well, it becomes obliterated in this passage, too, today. Uh, the story before us is obviously a story about a man who is physically blind, but it's also an exemplary narrative. And what that means is that there's another layer of meaning to this story. We have a man who's physically blind, but there's another layer of meaning. Uh, and, and the scene uh, here, we can learn uh, something about uh, a spiritual reality. Okay, so let's start by setting it in context. If you uh, turned one page ahead, in fact, most of you don't even need to turn one page. If you just go uh, 28 verses ahead, 
what's happening there? Jesus is making a triumphal, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Hosanna, Palm Sunday. He's moving, he's, it, Jesus is headlong for the cross. And so this story of Jesus healing this blind man in Luke's account here uh, takes place in the very shadow of the cross. And that is important. Uh, it's not just a chrono- chronological issue, but it has also to do with, you remember that, that, that Luke, uh, the gospel writer, and of course the Holy Spirit, the ultimate gospel writer, wants us to grasp significance and meaning. And so this story shows up, yeah, it's in a chronological order, but there's also this, this freight attached to it that the writer wants us to see. Um, I, I, was, I was reading a commentary from a guy, and, and this, the wordiness of this quote just kind of made me laugh. I'm going to read it to you. I mean, it's a good quote, but I mean, it's very wordy. He says, Luke's account of the healing of the blind man It epitomizes the sociological significance of the healing work of Jesus on behalf of the poor as a manifestation of the now active kingdom of God. Who would like to explain that? Uh, But basically, soteriology is the the doctrine of, of salvation. Okay, so basically what the smart guy is saying is it's the way God saves. Okay, so the fancy quote man is saying, by watching Jesus heal a blind man, we can learn something about a spiritual reality. And all of that brings us to our very first point, which is the impossibility defined. Look at verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now that seems like a simple enough uh, fact, we've all seen a blind man. In fact, uh, I had a blind friend in elementary school, Blind Bob. And uh, Bob and I were, Blind Bob and I were friends, and, uh, and he had a number of friends. And I really, I, I liked Bob a lot, and we hung out some, and we hung out enough where um, we'd say, hey, you want to go to the cafeteria and get a milkshake? Yes, I would. Um, without even thinking about it, his right hand would go out and search for my left elbow, and my left elbow would go out, and I'd lead Bob down to the cafeteria. And he had a friend like me, and he had probably six or seven people that he was good friends with. And, uh, but I'll tell you, Bob was clothed well. He had loving family. He had a nice home to go to. He had a Braille machine. Uh, he got rides to school. Uh, you know, he was just, he had good medical care uh, ongoing throughout his whole life, addressing his problem, his blindness, and other things. And, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of blind guy we picture. But it's kind of a sanitized a version of what a blind man was in, uh, in an ancient day. Um, you know, in, in Jesus' day, this man had no choice but to beg just to, just to survive. That's what a blind man did. There were no computer jobs. He wasn't working for Sprint as a telemarketer. Um, he didn't have a Braille machine. There were no Braille on, on the elevator buttons. Not that they had elevators, but uh, there was no employment opportunity uh, for him, except to beg. That's all he could do was make his way, feel his way, go to a public square where he knew people would pass and put out his hand and say, please, I have no other option except to totally, utterly rely on the kindness of passerbys. That's all he could do. Now, that's quite a picture. And physically, too. Um, you know, with eye issues, eye issues are very complicated. And uh, it was not uncommon for a blind man of, of that day to have flies flying around his eye sockets and not to have uh, a proper moisture, and there, there were no medications. And, I mean, it was just a very hard, different kind of thing that we might imagine. Furthermore, I've got a chart for you. 
I don't know if you can read this or not, but let me just tell you. It says, like, the Gospel of Luke on top, it says the ruler. So you got a ruler up on top. And then it kind of goes down, and there's a governing class. And then you've got merchants on the left, and you've got some the, uh, religious people on the right. You've got artisans on the far left. You've got peasants in the middle. Then the la- second to last layer is the un- unclean and degraded. And then the last layer, on the very, very bottom, are the expendables. That's what it was in uh, ancient Palestine. If you look on the, the side there, power and privilege. That's a, this is a chart on power and privilege. So as far as power and privilege is concerned, the blind man falls into, the blind beggar falls into the bottom category as an expendable part of society. He's an expendable part. He's the part nobody cares about. He's not even unclean and degraded. He's lower than unclean and degraded in that culture. Now, can you imagine the, the scene, what, what the context that this guy lives in? Now, let's apply this to your life. Spiritually speaking, if we're to make a spiritual application, spiritually sp- speaking, outside of faith in the Lord Jesus, we are trapped in darkness. Do you agree with that? Outside of faith in the Lord Jesus, we were one of the expendables. I mean, all the way on the bottom, lower than unclean and degraded, uh, power and privilege, all the way to the very bottom, no power, no privilege outside of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were also utterly unable to change ourselves like this blind guy, unable to do anything about it. All we could do is cry out, unable. Well, it's these things, ladies and gentlemen, if we're to take a spiritual lesson, that determine our suitability for the gospel. If we're that, then we're ripe for the harvest. If we're not that, then we're holding on to something that's other than the Lord Jesus. That's a spiritual application you could make. And uh, if you know, if we were inventing a gospel, um, we'd invent the exact opposite of that, wouldn't we? If we were inventing a God, inventing a gospel, we, you know, we'd have a God who would, would, would sit up there and say, you get a merit point for that. That was fantastic. Thank you for the money that you put in the plate. That's a great job. If we were inventing a gospel, we'd be honored, wouldn't we? You know, for keeping our nose clean, keeping our nose to the grindstone, keeping our nose out of other people's business. You know, we'd be, we'd be given honor for uh, our success in business and life and the success of our children and their beauty. And, you know, we've been given merits for that kind of stuff. Our parenting skills, helping an old lady across the street, that's the kind of invi- uh, 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 religion we would invent. But that's not the, the spiritual reality. Certainly not the case of this guy physically. Uh, keep your finger where you are, if you would, and flip to the right to 1 Corinthians. Go about a quarter inch or so to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Apostle Paul writing this, and he says in verse 27, 1 Corinthians 1, 27, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Oh, let me keep reading. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
you know, it's an upside-down gospel, ladies and gentlemen. It's just, it's not what we would think. It's the opposite of what we would think. And it, and it begins with one's understand, uh, understanding of our status um, as helpless and hopeless and only able to receive. And that's the precise starting point to uh, spiritual life. Let's look at our second point. The tenacity demonstrated. If you would look, uh, go back to our passage here to verse 36. It says, um, when the blind man heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Um, who knows who Michael Phelps is? Okay. Oh, really? Everybody? Um, who doesn't know? Okay, I'll help you. He's the, you know, the greatest living Olympian now, right? In history, human history, the greatest living Olympian. It's just, it's pretty cool. But, you know, pretty popular guy, wouldn't you say? I mean, if everybody knows who he is. Well, everybody knew who Jesus was. Jesus of Nazareth, it was big news. It's not like he was some little isolated guy walking around. He was big news, especially as he's heading toward the cross. Big news. Um, and uh, this guy's at the gate, and he, uh, he realizes that uh, uh, Jesus comes by and... Uh, you know, everybody knows who he is, and something must have stirred in this man's heart uh, to show him that he had a single shot in this life, one shot uh, to be cured. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of um, It's a Wonderful Life, my third favorite movie, uh, where uh, it's, you know, you've seen that movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Just love that movie. And, uh, you know, it's a scene where George Bailey, and he's stuck in, uh, he's stuck in uh, Potterville or whatever the name uh, Bedford Falls, he's stuck there, and, and he goes to Mary's house, and uh, she's play, she b- plays Buffalo Gals, won't you come out tonight on the record player, and, and uh, why'd you come over here anyway? I don't know, and he leaves, and he forgot his hat, and he comes back in, and, and uh, Sam Wainwright calls, oh, hello, Sam, how are you? Uh, and uh, George Bailey, he comes in, and she's, he's mad, and she's mad, too, she even took Buffalo Gals, won't you come out tonight, and she broke the record, you remember that? So he doesn't want to see her again, she didn't want to see him again, they're both angry, he comes in, he forgets his hat. And they have to share the Andy Griffith telephone. And so they're both listening to the same phone. And Sam Wright, Wainwright's talking about investments and blah, 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 hee-haw and all that stuff. And, and uh, he says, tell that old guy, George, it's a, it's a once-in-a-lifetime chance. And, I mean, it's just the most, in my opinion, it's the most passionate, gosh, it's the most passionate uh, movie scene ever because their faces are inches apart. Their breath is intermingled. They're sharing the same little phone thing. And uh, he says, tell George it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And she says, he says, it's a once-in-a-lifetime chance. And I mean, Mary, you know, I mean, just, oh. It's just such a great scene. But he realizes, they both realize, if they don't take that one chance, you know, is gone forever. And so here's this guy. He's on the side of the road. He hears the big commotion. He says, hey, who is that? What's going on? It's Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, this is it. I got one chance. And there's something in his heart that believes that Jesus is who he says he is. Look at verse 38. He called out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now let's pause there for a minute. Jesus, Son of David. Son of David is an incredibly potent expression. This is the first occurrence of it in Luke and only one of two occurrences in Luke. You know who says it the other time? Jesus himself in chapter 20. So this guy says, Jesus, son of David, and it's, it's not just a genealogical statement. It's not just about his, uh, his um, uh, family tree. Uh, it is a, it's a messianic statement. It's, a, it's a, an expression the rabbis used frequently, 
son of David. It was this, this, uh, this one who was sent by God, this, this rescuer, this savior, this Messiah. Uh, and uh, this man was crying nothing more or nothing less than an assertion of the promise of God given and then forged, wrought, protected, uh, carried through human history all the way to Jesus Christ in whom it culminates. And this guy has this profound piece of theological information that he's screaming out at the top of his lungs. Now let me ask you a question. I'm straying from my notes here just a little bit, but how did this guy know? You want to know how he knew? I don't know. Uh, I sort of know. Somehow God divinely showed it to his heart. We'll talk about that more uh, in our closing closing remarks. But this guy is crying out a very potent, powerful statement that certainly would have gotten Jesus' uh, attention. Somehow this guy knows it's not just some kind of uh, sociopolitical kind of a, a title. He knows that it's somehow going to affect him personally. And so in verse 38, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Um, those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Imagine how loud that must have been to be over, heard over a giant crowd of people thronging by Jesus. I mean, can you imagine how loud that would have been? Um, we, we were given Redbird tickets a few years ago, and uh, they were really cool tickets. It was right behind home plate. So it was four or five rows behind home plate, and it was like, wow, I don't go to a lot of sporting games, you know? And so this was really kind of cool. And so uh, we had Redbirds and then the bad guy team, and the bad guy team was batting. And so bad guy's up, and, and it's, you know, partway through and kind of a critical point in the game. And I started thinking, I've got this little noise that I make. And I was thinking, I wonder if I could make this guy strike out. And let me move my microphone. Here's my noise. Boo! Okay, so it's kind of a loud, dramatic noise, you know? So anyway, the guy gets up, and, uh, and the, here's the pitch, you know, and I go, and it's swing and a miss, you know. I was like, awesome, you know. And uh, while I'm doing that, the people in front of me are going, who is the idiot? You know, they weren't digging it. They, weren't, they didn't know my strategy, you know. And then uh, pitch number two, swing and a miss. Pitch number three, it's a ball. And so it's two strikes and a ball. And he gets up the bat, and he's, he's like, I could tell. I could tell I had the guy, you know, and he's like, he knew it was going to come, and sure enough, here's the pitch. Boo! Swing and a miss, and he strikes out, and he looks back at me like, and it like, gives me the stink eye. That's not my imagination. I mean, it was really a, one of the top cool moments of my life, but um, I had a very interesting life. But um, my point, however, is not only could I be heard over the crowd, but my, my shrieks were annoying and persistent, they were tenacious, uh, and they were personally humiliating. But once I got rolling, I just couldn't stop, you know? I had to see it through. And uh, that's what this guy's doing, ladies and gentlemen. This blind man was crying like a baby on an airplane. The crowd's trying to hush, and I'm going, stop it. Do you know who this is? It's Jesus of Nazareth. Son of David! Son of David! He will not be quieted. And he, he's humiliating himself. The crowd's not liking it. They're telling us, style that idiot to stop. But he won't stop. And Jesus acknowledges it. Um, I have on the authority of scriptures, ladies and gentlemen, that if you're willing to humiliate yourself, you'll get Jesus' attention every single time. Because the Bible teaches that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He loves the humble. 
He helps the humble. He, he condescends to the humble. Go ahead and cry out and embarrass yourself and say, I've got nothing except begging. Help me, Jesus. And God loves that. He loves it. You know, I, I think that most staff members here, I know I am always at, somehow involved in people's marriages at, in, at some point. You know, there's always one or two or three marriages that are either struggling or you, you brought into their midst so you know what to pray for and, and you meet with people and you, you, you meet with a couple and, and he's sitting there like this going, this chick is crazy and she's sitting there like this. Well, he doesn't love me and he just doesn't even treat me nice and he won't even listen to me. And Well, this chick is crazy and it's just blah, 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 blah. And you talk to him and it's like, well, it's like the other night when she said this. Well, that's not what I said. Oh, yes, it is. You're not hearing it right. We're just hearing it different. And, and it's just this. It's the same kind of thing over and over and over again. I'm not, to down, I'm not downplaying the hurt. The hurt's real and the problems are complicated and the situa- every situation is different. But there are some essential things that, that will always cause problems. And there's one essential thing that is a ray of hope. And a man said it to me this week. Here's what he said. Without divine intervention in my life, there is no hope. And I, I said, bro, that's, that's the only morsel of health you've got to hang on to. Unless God works divinely, there is no hope for you. And here, here's the news. Here's, a, here's the big point, ladies and gentlemen. You want to know what the big point is, the big idea today? You know, the big, the big idea is that that's true in every single situation in your life. There's no hope for you unless there's divine intervention. It's just that we're more acutely aware of it in the midst of pain. When we have a crushing load, we we go, oh, that's right. There's no hope for me unless there's divine intervention. But ladies and gentlemen, every little step you take, every success you have, every good sunny day you experience, there's no hope for you without divine intervention. We would do our souls well to humiliate ourselves to that and rejoice in that, you know, um, what God wants and what God teaches throughout a lifetime and what God is in the business of doing spiritually is bringing us to the place where we realize there is no hope for me right this minute, even as a believer, just for a, for a fulfilling, satisfying quality of Christian life. No hope for me without uh, divine intervention. That, uh, you know, the, the minute we forget that um, Jesus is the only one who can fill the trembling beggar's hand, the minute we forget that, that our, our, our quality of life is in peril. I'm not saying we gain and lose salvation. I'm saying our quality of Christian life is in peril. All right, our next point, um, the specificity uh, required. Look at verse 40. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. You know, the common uh, misperception amongst um, both saved and unsaved people, and, well, excuse me, unsaved people and immature believers, a common misperception is that sincerity is this solid currency with God. You know, if you're just sincere, that's all that really matters is that you're sincere. And, uh, I mean, we hear it all the time, you know. Well, you know, I'm going to read such and such a book, and and... Oh, just don't bog me down with your theology. You people and your theology and your big crazy words and everything. Can't we just be sincere? 
And it's the same thing with worship. You know, I mean, I've told you a lot of you this before, but I, you know, I have to approve and and carefully comb over every single word that happens in a worship service. And I, I feel that that's a heavy weight because God's going to hold me accountable and say, why'd you put that lie in front of my people? Or why'd you put that half-truth in front of my people? You know, I mean, that's a big... And so, but but all the time it's like, well, what? why worry about the lyrics so much? I mean, what's the big deal, you know? Why do you have to pick it apart so much all the time? And, you know, folks, um, sincerity without substance is a, a bag of bones. You know, it's... Sincerity without substance, without truth, is, is very empty. Um, one, uh, one writer said this, Leon Morris, um, uh, asked to put his desire into words, the blind man crystallized his longing. I like that very much. The blind man was asked by Jesus, I want you to crystallize your longing. I just don't want you to call out and say, oh, Jesus, son of David, huh? Uh, you know, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He wants the guy to articulate it precisely. He just doesn't want sincerity. He just doesn't want, I'm just so glad to be by you, Jesus. He wants him to say what he wants. Well, there's a good application for us. I mean, if, if a person is searching uh, for a Savior, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, if you can honestly say in your heart that you haven't come to a transaction where you know what it is to be, you know what it is to be swept up by this thing called grace. You know what it, you don't know what it is to have guilt and shame lifted off your heart. You don't understand what it means to have someone die in your place. That God would take that per, that person's righteousness and give it to you, and take your guilt and give it to the person of righteousness. If you don't understand that, uh, then, ladies and gentlemen, um, receive the Lord of Glory. Crystallize your longing. You know, pray, God. I don't know exactly. All there is to know about you, and I sure don't understand much or most or almost all of what I'm reading in this book. But, but will you show me what is true? Will you forgive me my sin? Will you, will you fill my trembling, begging hand? Will you, will you make me yours? I mean, pray with specificity. And if you're a believer and uh, you're uh, dealing with uh, the hard things of life and, you know, in prayer... Uh, you ever been angry with God? You ever pray about your anger toward God? I, I, I've talked to a whole bunch of people in my, in my lifetime and said, I'm just so angry with God. I don't understand why I could do such a thing, and I'm just angry with Him. And I say, have, have you prayed about Have you told Him that you're angry? And the answer is always, no. Well, pray it. What do you want me to do for you? Well, God, I'm just, I, I'm I shouldn't be, but I'm angry with you, and I don't know how to—I don't know what to do with it. You know, I'm asking questions like, "How long?" and "Why?" and "How could you?" and well, pray those things. God wants you to—he beseeches you to do that. He says, "Come to me with specificity. What, what do you want me to do for you?" And when you don't know what to pray, ladies and gentlemen, then just recite back to God what He's revealed about Himself in His Word to be true. When you don't know what to pray, say, Lord, I don't know what to say to you. My heart is broken. I can't even come up with the words, but I do know this. Your word says that you're faithful. Your word says that you keep your promises. Your word says that you won't let me slip out of your hand. Your word says that nothing can separate me from your love. Pray things that you know to be true about God. Pray with specificity. All right, our last point, uh, the remedy administered. Um, Verse 42, if you would look at it, Jesus said to him, receive your sight. 
your faith has healed you. Now, what does that mean? Does it really mean who healed him? Jesus healed him. But Jesus says your faith has healed you. Um, Jesus healed him, but you see that faith is the vehicle. Faith is the vehicle that God always wants. It's what God always wants for us, from us, belief in that which is unseen. Or belief in, um, maybe we would say, the God of the outcome. Belief in the God who is unseen. Belief in the God of the outcome, who controls the outcome. God wants that faith from us. And look at the desired result. Um, in verse 43, immediately he received his sight. So he's happy. He followed Jesus praising God. And then when all the people see it, they praise God too. And friends, if that doesn't happen, then salvation ain't real. Uh, if you're a churchgoer and, and you're not a worshiper and you're not a rejoicer in the personal living God, then that, I don't know what you got, but it probably ain't real. Um, in the Christian life, let's say you're a believer. If, um, if um, praising God and following him and rejoicing and praising, if that doesn't happen naturally to you, then you probably ain't very healthy. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a worship leader. I, I'm looking at my clock, my watch broke. Hang on a second. I, I'm a worship leader, and I have a very interesting perspective on Sunday morning because I'm staring at all of you, your faces. It's just very, I wish everybody could go up there and go, wow, this is freaky. Everybody's looking at you, you know, and I'm looking at you. And there have been times, no joke, there have been times on a Sunday morning where I have tears streaming down my face and I'm considering what's going on. I'm considering what we're thinking. I'm remembering who God is, and I'm rejoicing. And I open my eyes, and I see one of the three different people, which are every single week, some dude standing there going, Ugh. and I'm, <laughs> now I understand we all get tired uh, in church. I get tired in church, and I, it's my work day, you know. But, um, I, but I wonder, why is one person over here, you know, falling to pieces, and somebody's over here going, God's holiness. How can that be boring? How could it be boring? God wants hearts that are engaged in worship, which is the point of our being redeemed. I think that we can see that here. God gives him his sight. He praises God. The other people praise God. And that's the, that's the result of our being redeemed. And that would be a good thing for us to, uh, to take home. All right. Uh, last thing. I close with just a few more, just a couple little closing thoughts. Um, there are three main characters in this story. You've got the blind man, you've got Jesus, and you've got the crowd, right? Question, where are the disciples? You know, it's like they've kind of faded into the background and they're almost kind of uh, hidden by Luke's pen. Well, let's rewind just a little bit. Just go to the verses right before this section, verse 31. This is what Jesus had told the disciples. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. By the way, just in case you, you wondered if Jesus knew what he was doing, knew what he was facing, they, he says, we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Do you think that's clear? Verse 34, the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. You get that? They didn't understand it because the meaning was hidden from them. And these are the 12. 
These are the ones who are privy to Jesus virtually every hour uh, of every day for three years. And they don't know what's happening. And the very next thing Luke writes is about this poor guy who's at the bottom of the social scale, expendable, crying out. And all of a sudden he's saying, son of David. He's using this messianic statement. The disciples don't get it, but he does. What are we supposed to see? Except that God uh, administers truth divinely and profoundly. That God changes hearts and lives. What a portrait of the God of mercy. And what a, what a portrait of the reality of the need of sinners. The disciples don't get it. But this blind guy who's the least likely to get it, gets it. How did the blind man know? Something was shown to his heart by the divine Lord. That's the gospel message. I mean, one day you don't quite comprehend it. And another day you have a hard time going through your day your job, driving down Poplar, and your heart is tangled up and you need answers and you need them really, really bad. And that's because the Holy Spirit is blowing across a soul. Again, I say, receive the Lord of glory. Today may be your day of salvation. But for the Christian, man or woman in this room, um, I love to make this point. I've done it dozens and dozens of times, and I close with it. Um, What's the worst problem you ever had? I mean, just really, just think about it for one second. Just in your own heart of hearts, What's the worst problem you ever had in your life? Who answered eternally separated from God with no hope whatsoever? Anybody answer that? Well, that was it. <laughs> I know you're thinking, well, it was when I couldn't make my meal and the house was foreclosed and I lost my leg. You know, I mean, folks, you were eternally separated from God as far as east is from west. That's a big problem. It's the biggest. And friends... If God was able to solve the biggest problem you could ever have and solve it finally and preserve you eternally and clean you up and make you an acceptable worshiper, don't you know that this God will not abandon you now in your hard hour? Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we know that we do that because... um, You have divinely interceded, that you have blown across our souls in the power of the Holy Spirit and you have unstopped ears and made blind eyes see and have given health where there was none and brought those who were far away to a place that is near. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we would um, recall what is true here. I pray that you would apply uh, penetrating truth to our lives, that you would change us and affect us and, and call us onto deeper worship of who you are and more satisfying Um, fulfilling Christian lives. And we pray all these things so that you'll be brought glory. And uh, we do it only in Jesus' name. Amen.